Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 9? Luke chapter 9. We are following in the uh, footsteps of Christ, and I know that uh, uh, you as a church have been working through this book uh, step by step. I actually think I had an opportunity to preach on one of the uh, passages in Luke uh, a couple of months ago. We're at the end of chapter, um, Luke chapter 9, and would you read with me at verse 51? When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He had sent his messengers ahead of him and went and entered the village of Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to call fire to come from heaven and consume them? But he turned to them and he rebuked them. And they went on to another village. And as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have their nest. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay its head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to, my, to those in my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who has put his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. I don't know about you, but uh, do you ever find yourself confused by scripture? As you read it, it's sometimes just utterly confusing at times. And it's like, I just don't get it. It doesn't make sense to me. As you, as you just saw in this passage, we have a group of Samaritans who are rejecting Christ and not even offering hospitality for him to come into town. And Christ chose to offer him grace and mercy. But then we have three would-be followers who are coming after him. And Jesus makes a hard message, which they probably reject. Jesus, I don't get it. It doesn't make sense. Well, oftentimes when you read scripture, if you don't read it in totality and read the following, the complete message, it does seem to be confusing. But what I think we're going to do today is as you see where Jesus is going, is you could see his mission and you could see his message and you could see his purpose, it's going to make complete and total sense. So, so as we look at this section of scripture, I want you to consider um, several points that we're going to be looking at. First, we're going to be identifying the focus of Jesus. Jesus has a prim primary focus. Second, we're going to be looking at the faithlessness of the Samaritans. The Samaritans weren't showing faith in Christ. They weren't showing faith in the gospel, and they were turning him aside. The third thing that I think we're going to see is the fierceness of the disciples. And what I think you're going to find out, as I find out, is oftentimes in my own life, and I'm sure in your own life, that we could be so full of truth that becomes a level of self-righteousness. Then we're not offering grace to others. So we're going to see the focus of Christ. We're going to see the faithlessness of the Samaritans. We're going to see the fierceness of the apostles. And then finally, we're going to see this fickleness of these would-be followers. They seem to be fickle. They don't seem to be full-hearted, self-centered, um, self-directed, I should say, um, focused on Christ. Well, let's look at the focus of Christ here. We see that in verse 51. 
what does it say here? It says this, that when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. So the first thing that we need to really consider as we consider this passage is the fact that Jesus had a primary focus for his life and his ministry. He was brought here, he came here to earth with a primary purpose. And what was his primary purpose? He came here to live, he came here to die, he came here to be raised from the grave, and he came here to redeem mankind. Jesus had a focus to go to Jerusalem, and as he was going to Jerusalem, that was going to be his pilgrimage, that was going to be his purpose, that was going to be his journey. Nothing was going to distract him from that. Nothing was going to dissuade him from his point. Jesus came here with the Father's desire. He was following his Father's desire to come here and to redeem humanity, to redeem mankind. He had a focus. Jesus was passionate about it. What, why did Jesus come into this world? Well, Jesus came into this world to, uh, to reconcile humanity to God. He came into this world to absorb the wrath of God for our sin, that every time that we sin, God is angry at that sin. And what God did for us in Christ was for those who trust in him, all of that wrath would be absorbed into Christ. That for those who trust in him, they would never have to fear ever again having to stand under that type of judgment ever again. That's the message that he wanted to do. He wanted to provide a canceling of the legal debt, the debt that we were going to have against the law, that that law that was placed upon us, God was offering us the opportunity for that debt to be taken away. He was offering you forgiveness. He was offering you mercy. He was offering you joy. He was offering you real hope. That is why Christ came here. He came here to live. He came here to die, and he came here to rise again. He came here to set people free. Everything that Jesus Christ was going to do, everything in his focus, was in the looming vision of the cross. There were going to be many trips that he was going to make, but as Luke is going to tell us, as from this point forward, Luke chapter 9, verse 51, all the way to the crucifixion, Jesus is setting his focus on Jerusalem. Jesus is setting his focus on the cross. Far too often times in my own life, and I'm sure in yours, we find ourselves getting so easily distracted. You ever sit down and start to pray, and then all of a sudden your mind goes off somewhere else? Or you open the word, and it's like, you know, it's gone. You may make these commitments at the beginning of the year, and then what happens? By week two, those commitments are gone. It wasn't the case with Christ. That Christ could hang on the cross and say, it is what? Finished. I've completed the course that you've set for me. Jesus Christ had a focus. We see that in verse 1, in verse 51. But then there was this faithlessness of the Samaritans. Read with me in verse 52 and following. And he sent his messengers ahead of them who went and entered the village of the Samaritans to make preparation for them. Now, I should help you to understand this, that when Jesus traveled, he had his 12 apostles with him, and then he had 70 or 72, depending on your version, uh, people that he had sent out on a missionary journey. But there were also a number of friends and family members that were probably following. So there was a large contingency of people that were following. So when Jesus was going from town to town, what he would oftentimes do, what was his custom, was that he was going to send some of his disciples ahead to prepare the way for him to come, to make sure that there was lodging, to make sure that there was food, 
because a town would take these traveling teachers in and provide levels of hospitality. So Jesus was preparing that town for the fact that he was coming. So Jesus had sent ahead these apostles. But read with me what happens. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. It probably would be helpful at this point, and you probably already know this, so it's probably a review, that the Samaritans were a group of people that were hated by the Jews. There was great animosity between these two people, Jews and the Samaritans. The Samaritans were a group of Jews who during the Assyrian conquest started to intermarry with the Gentiles of the time. So what was happening was that there was a mix of race, but more importantly, there was a mix of religion and theology. And the pure Jews would look at the Samaritans and say that you're compromising, you're turning away, you're not pure, you're not clean. So the Samaritans, in response, built their own temple on Mount Gerizim. And then in response, what they did was they wrote their own Pentateuch, the Samaritan Pentateuch. They created their own liturgy. They created their own level of worship. They believed that true worship was going to happen in Samaria. And the Jews hated it. And there was bigotry and there was blindness on both sides. They hated one another. Oftentimes, even the purest Jews would do this. What they would do is instead of going through Samaria, you would go from Galilee. If you wanted to get to Judea, you would, the shortest route would be to go through Samaria. But because people didn't want to go through Samaria, because Jews didn't want to go through Samaria, sometimes they would actually go around Samaria to get to Judea. Take the longer route just so I don't have to deal with those people. Now think about that. What Jesus did, if you remember the story back in John chapter 4, remember the woman, and the woman in the well? And, and Jesus actually in that passage, it talks about the fact that Jesus had to go through Samaria. There was a divine purpose in him going through Samaria at that time. It was not by mistake that he ended up at that one well at that time. It was not by mistake that he ended up talking to that woman, that Samaritan. And she looked at him, if you remember the story in John chapter 4, and Jesus says, give me something to drink. And these are polluted people, according to the Jews. These are unclean people. For a man to talk to a woman at that time would have been an affront. But on top of that, this was a woman who was a Samaritan. And you're asking me for something to drink out of my own cup. And Jesus offered her the gospel of free grace, the same offer that he offers to every single one of us today. He offers you hope and he offers you life. And he knows your story. If you remember that woman caught a woman at the uh, well, she had, I believe, five husbands and the man that she was living with right now was not her husband. He knew her story. He knew her baggage. He knew all of the sin that was there in her life. And in spite of that, he offered her grace. The faithlessness of the Samaritans. So they, they, in their anger towards the Jews, they heard that Jesus was going through Samaria and is setting his face towards Jerusalem. And they hate the Jews. And they hate Jewish worship. And so what are they going to do? They're going to give him no respite. They're going to give him no help. They're going to not serve him. So we see this, this focus of Jesus. Jesus is set like a flint, Isaiah um, tells us sent like a flint towards Jerusalem. 
He is moving towards the cross, to his appointed doom, and to our appointed freedom. And the faithlessness of these Samaritans who aren't turning their life to him. And then it moves to the third thing I want you to consider, the fierceness of these apostles. What happens there in verse 53? The, the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, what did they do? They said, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven and consume them? <laughs> Are you kidding me? <laughs> Think about that now. I'm not offering you a hotel room, or I'm not offering you a meal, and I'm going to call fire down for you and consume you all. Are you kidding Oh, my goodness, James, John, what is up with you? Now, it is possible, because the last time I was here, I preached um, the passage where Jesus was um, going back to Nazareth, and his own people had rejected him and taken him to the brow of the hill and were ready to destroy him. Were James and John calling for fire to come down on the Nazarites at that time? I don't think so. So I don't know, and I can't read their heart. It is possible because of the hatred that they had for the Samaritans that their own bitterness, their own bigotry, their own blindness was fueling this passionate anger towards destroying these people. It is also possible, as Pastor Doug was preaching recently, on the Transfiguration. You remember the story of the Transfiguration? Okay, so now at the transfiguration, Jesus Christ is um, transfigured. Peter, James, and John are there with him. And um, who are the apostles, who are the people that were brought there um, in that transfiguration? Do you remember? Moses and Elijah, right. And Moses, the great prophet, uh, great uh, prophet of the Old Testament, and the prophet and the leader, again, of Elijah brought there. Now, if you remember the story of Elijah in 1 Kings and then in 2 Kings, there were two occasions where Elijah had called down fire from heaven. On the first occasion, if you remember, this is the big one that everyone probably remembers. It's that um, time where um, Elijah challenged the prophets of Baal, and he created this big sacrifice, and those prophets were out there praying to their gods, doing all these ruminations, trying to get their god to burn up the sacrifice. And if you remember, Elijah is kind of actually poking fun at their gods because their god can't hear and isn't seeing and isn't doing anything. And hours and hours went by, and guess what happens? Finally, Elijah says, it's now my turn. And Elijah calls for buckets of water to be poured onto this sacrifice so that it is so drenched, so waterlogged, that it is literally impossible from a human viewpoint, to get this thing to burn up. And then what he does is he prays. And God doesn't only just destroy the sacrifice. He burns up the rocks. He burns up the ground. He looks up every bit of water that is there. So perhaps James and John have that in their mind. Or in 2 Kings chapter 1, there's another story. Ahaziah um, is the king at the time. And Ahaziah is looking to get... Um, Elijah to come back to him. And he sends out a troop of 50 men to him, and he says um, these troop of 50 men are supposed to come and bring back um, Elijah. And Elijah says, if I am the man of God, I call down fire from heaven, and you will be destroyed. 
And immediately what happens? Fire from heaven comes, and those 50 troops are destroyed. I guess Ahaziah didn't get it, because what he did was next, he sent another 50 troops. Can you imagine if you're the next 50 guys? <laughs> I mean, I just felt, oh my goodness, you can't be serious. Now the next 50 guys go, if I am the man of God, I call down fire from heaven and you will be destroyed. And what happens? They're destroyed. So now he sends out a third contingent. A third contingent comes and now this commander is now on his knees begging. Because now he realizes that the man that he's standing in front of is representing something more powerful than himself. So I don't know if John and James, as they're thinking about calling down fire from heaven, is doing it because of their own bigotry and their blindness because they hate the uh, Samaritans. Or if, on the other hand, on the heels of the transfiguration, thinking about Elijah, and if Elijah is the prophet, but we heard that Christ is supposed to be the greatest prophet, so maybe they're saying, well, if Elijah called down fire, Jesus, you must be willing to call down fire as well. And there's a fierceness that happens. Do you ever find that in your own life? Where we, where we find ourselves getting so locked in on truth, that we get blinded to grace. It's interesting that Jesus Christ was called a man of, full of grace and truth. And inevitably what we find is that uh, oftentimes we get ourselves so focused on the law that we forget about the gospel. We get so focused on the rule that we forget about the relationship. Sometimes as Christian, we miss God's desire for us to be people of grace. We're quick with truth, slow with grace. One author put it this way, a little bit longer quote, but stay with me. One author put it this way, truth-oriented Christians love studying scripture and theology, but sometimes they are quick to judge and slow to forgive. They're strong on truth, weak on grace. Grace-oriented Christians forgive and free, and they love forgiveness and freedom. But sometimes they neglect Bible study and see moral standards as legalism. They are strong on grace and weak on truth. Truth without grace breeds self-righteousness, legalism, that will poison a church and push people away from Christ. Grace without truth breeds moral indifference and keeps people from seeing their need for Christ. Attempts to soften the gospel by minimizing truth keeps people from Jesus. Attempts to toughen the gospel by minimizing grace keeps people from Jesus. It's not enough to offer grace or truth. We must offer both. What's your driving passion today? What's mine? Can you imagine if our homes were set up in a way where it was not just truth but grace? Where there was a balance? Where it was not just law but gospel? Can you imagine what it would be like if we were people of mercy, people of forgiveness, people of hope? Because we have that hope in our lives and we pour that hope out to others, to our wives, to our children, to our husband, to our family, to our friends, to our neighborhood, to our church. What would this church look like if we got a hold of that vision? Christ on his first advent was here for what reason? He was here to offer hope. Remember John 3.16? Everyone knows that one, right? 
John 3.16, what is it? For God so what? Loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. But what's John 3.17? Turn with me, John 3.17. Hold your fingers there. Turn with me to John 3.17. Because it's not simply um, grace. It's not simply law. It's grace. Christ came here to this world to offer grace to you and to me. John 3.16, for those that are there. We saw 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life or eternal life. But God, for God did not send his son into the world to what? To condemn the world. But in order that the world might be saved through him. There is clearly going to be a judgment. Don't misunderstand me. And God hates sin. Don't misunderstand me. Every single one of us will stand before God and have to give an account for every thought, every word, every attitude, and every action. It doesn't matter what people have done to us. It matters what we've done with God. That's the issue. However, on Christ's first advent, he was here to offer grace. So in light of the fearness, of fearfulness, I'm sorry, the fierceness of the apostles, he was offering the opportunity for hope and grace and mercy. Do you do that? Is that me? Is that you? That's Christ's mission. That's Christ's journey. We're called to be ambassadors of his grace. We're called to embrace his grace God calls us to extend his grace. God calls us to help people reconcile their relationship with God and reconcile their relationship with others. Walls are crumbling all around people. Marriages are breaking down. Families are in a shambles at times. And what are we seeing? That people are lacking. People are lacking with hope and they're lacking peace in their lives. They're lacking joy in their lives. And we have the greatest message that mankind has ever known. And you've been offered the greatest gift that has ever been known and God calls you to extend it and to share it and to live it. We're on a mission of mercy. It's only a vision of the cross that will encourage caring. It's only a vision of the cross that will encourage compassion and selflessness and forgiveness. It's only a vision of the cross which we should be extending. Is that your journey today? So we see the focus of Christ is he set his face towards the cross. We see the faithlessness of these Samaritans. These Samaritans are out there and they are not turning to Christ. They believe that there's another way. We see the fierceness of the apostles. Maybe it's in their bigotry and their blindness or maybe it's in their desire to be righteous. But the reality is this, that Christ came here on his first advent to do what? To offer grace. And that moves us to our last level I would like you to consider, the fickleness of these would-be apostles, the fickleness of these would-be followers. Look with me at verse 57. So after they've been turned away from Samaria, they went on the, to another village. And in verse 57, it says this, and they were going along the road. Someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. What would an evangelist would love that, right? Can you think about that, being a, uh, an evangelist? I don't even have to work hard. Guess what? They're coming, and they want to know faith. They want to have faith. I want to follow you, Christ, wherever you go. And what's Christ's response? Christ didn't say, that's great. 
pray your prayer, walk down the aisle, raise your hand. What did he say? Foxes have holes. Birds of the air have their nests, but the Son of God, Son of Man, has nowhere to lay his head. What Jesus knew, well, I can't know. I can't even know my own heart well. Um, but Jesus knew every humanity, every person's heart. I look around this room and I could see you, but I can't see your heart. When Christ looked at humanity, he not only saw them externally, but he could see deep into your heart. He knew your greatest need. And he also knew your biggest idols. And it seems as though this man struggled with some type of materialism, something in this world, some comfort in this world. Well, if he struggled with it, you know there are plenty of us in this room that struggle with the exact same thing. We struggle with our homes. I was out working in my yard yesterday and saying, oh, I'm really so thankful for the house that I have. I kind of like my yard. I kind of like my house. Far too often times, though, if we find ourselves finding comfort in those things, we may not be as eager to follow Christ because Christ has a focus, right? Christ is heading to where? Jerusalem. He's heading to a cross. And anyone that is going to follow me has to realize that this journey is going to at times be painful and it may be a path of suffering. And so that as Christ is countering this man right now, he's looking into his heart and showing him and exposing to him perhaps an idol of his heart, materialism. But then he goes on. Now the first one said, follow, I will follow you wherever you go. I should tell you that there are two words I want you to pick up in this section. The word follow and the word first. First one, follow. I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus says, I don't have anywhere to live. Second one, Jesus now is the initiator. Jesus turns to this one and says, follow me. And what's the response? But he said, Lord, master, ruler, the one who's over me, the sovereign one, first let me go and bury my father. Now Jesus says something that seems so crazy to our ears until you understand what he's getting at. He says, leave the dead to bury the dead. You proclaim the gospel. Can you imagine if you just heard that your, you believe that your parent is going to die or has just recently died, and Jesus says, let somebody else take care of burying them. You follow me. Are you kidding? But once again, Jesus is exposing the heart of this person. In Jewish custom, if there was a death, this person would have had to be buried almost immediately. So this man would not have been out on a missionary journey with Jesus if his father had died. So that's not the issue. His father has not died. Is it possible that his father is terminal and is dying soon? Perhaps. But what Jesus is challenging right now is what are you putting first in your life? Jesus is not negating the fifth commandment. The fifth commandment, if you remember that, it says to honor your father and mother. And one of the greatest duties that a person could have is to take care of their family all the way through their life and even at their death. 
But what Christ is challenging here is who is first in your life? Because this man says, Lord, but then he says, first, let me do something else. There could be even a more sinister point. I don't know. Is it possible? I don't know. If after hearing the first response to the first person that Jesus said, I don't even have a place to live, that this man is now considering that I want to get my inheritance so I have something to hold me over because we're going to be on a missionary journey and I'm not going to have much to have. So is it possible that this man is really not sitting there thinking about really honoring his father and mother, but is exposing something that's there, once again, materialism, or finding security that's in here in this world? I don't know for certain, but I can tell you this. I know my own heart, and far too often times the things of this world become more important than Christ. Second apostle, second disciple or would-be disciple, third one. Yet another, verse 61, said I, will, um, said, I will follow you, Lord, once again, but first, can I say goodbye, farewell to my family at home? Now, is that a reasonable request as well? What happens if I were to go home to my wife today and say that God has given me a desire to go onto the mission field right now, and he is calling me to do this? And I just want to come home and say goodbye to you right now because God is calling me to go. Think about every one of the apostles. When Jesus called them, they dropped their nets and they left. They ran. They went. But do you think they just dropped their nets and left? Wasn't it possible that they actually went home and said goodbye? I think in all likelihood, they probably did go home and say goodbye. So what is Christ getting at here? And going back to Elijah, um, not to belabor the point, but... Elijah, if you remember, when he called Elisha to be his mentor, Elisha said almost the exact same thing as this person said. Can I go home and say goodbye? And Elijah said, yes, go home, say goodbye, and then come and follow me. So what is Jesus getting at here? Once again, it goes back to priority. Jesus says to the one in verse 62 no one who's put his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. That sometimes in our own hearts, there's a half-heartedness. Sometimes in our own hearts, there is a procrastination. We put off doing the things that we know we're supposed to do. And it's because we haven't sold out to Christ. And what Christ could see in this man's heart is that something was off. So don't read this passage, as some people read it, that says that I should never go to a family member's funeral. That's not what Christ is saying. That I should never seek to have a home. That's not what Christ is saying. That I should never say goodbye and farewell to my family members. That's not what Christ is saying. What Christ is saying is that he must be first. We are called to turn our eyes towards him to fix our vision on him alone. He is the one who should, we should offer absolute loyalty, total dependence, unreserved obedience. 
The problem is not often that we are picking wrong things. It's the fact that we have wrong priorities. That's the issue. The problem is not the bad things. It's the fact that we put other things first. And what's the thing that we oftentimes put first? Me. My passions, my purposes, my priorities, my pursuits become more important than Christ. And the reality is that he is called to be prized among all things. He is called to be admired and savored and to be loved. I want you to consider the title of the message I gave. Will you follow me? Will you follow me? Think about each word there for a moment. Will. What comes to your mind when you think of the word will? For me, it's this idea of devotion or passion or pursuit. It's, it's this motivation of my heart. Will. Will. You. It's not about all the other apostles and all the other people in this world. It comes down to you. Will you personally commit your way to Christ? Will you choose to be a minister of mercy? Will you choose to be a, an ambassador of grace? And will you follow Christ no matter where he calls you to go? Will you follow? What does follow mean? to go into somebody's footsteps, to, to go after them. They're leading, and I'm behind you. I'm coming alongside of you. And then there's the me. Because I know in my own heart, and I know in yours, that we follow after a number of different things. It's the new uh, TV star that's out there, the new music. Um, it's the new fad that's out there. It's all these things that we follow after. We don't have a problem following. We, we worship. Humanity worships. It's not what we worship. It's not that we don't worship. Humanity, everybody in humanity worships. They make things big. The issue is this. Who do you make big? What do you make big? What Christ is calling for us to do is, will you follow me, Christ? See, Christ is called to be desired and treasured. Christ is called to be the one that satisfies you. Christ is the one that is supposed to be the cherished one in your life. Christ is the one that you're supposed to value. Christ is supposed to be the one that we prize and revere among all things. Now, what would the family look like? What would this church look like? What would our neighborhoods look like if we got a vision of that Christ? The Christ that was offering grace. If as a husband, I offered grace to my wife or to my children when they don't deserve it. When my wife offers me grace and mercy when I don't deserve it. When my children do the same. When your children and families do the same. What would happen if you were on a mission of mercy? And what would happen if you were so totally committed to Christ that everything else seems second? I think that's the message that he wants to know from you. See, what we've done is we've dumbed down Christianity to a point where it's somebody prays a three-line prayer and, um, and they make no commitment. And Christ would have nothing of it. I want you to think lastly in closing. Jesus had 12 apostles. 
of the 12, one of them, on the surface, no one would have known the difference, right? On the surface, he went out on those missionary journeys. In all likelihood, he did some of the healing that was there. He was actually the one that was in charge of the treasury for Christ. He held the money bag. On the night that he was betrayed, Christ said, one of you is going to betray me. And none of the apostles pointed out this apostle. So on the surface, this person looked like everyone else. But what betrayed him was the fact that his heart was set on something other than the person and the work of Christ. Not to leave the other apostles. The other apostles either denied him or they um, ran away from him. And that reminds me of the beauty of the cross. Every single one of us in this room fail every single day. And even though we are called to be ministers of mercy and to have a total commitment, none of us will. And that's why we look to the only one that did do everything completely right. See, God has a perfect standard. And every single one of us in this room are going to stand before God and that perfect standard. For I hope the majority of us, we stand there in the wrath-absorbing work of Christ. That Christ took that anger for God, that God has for your sin, he took it upon himself 2,000 years ago, and that you could stand in his grace, in his mercy, in his hope, in his forgiveness. For some of us in this room, I, I would dare say that there, you've never hurt, you've never trusted in him. You may have heard the gospel of free grace year after year, tons of times, but you've closed your ears to it, closed your eyes to it, your heart has been hardened to it. And I pray that God opens your heart today, that today is the day of salvation. Today is the day where we can turn to him. And for those of us that do trust in him, you have an incredible opportunity to shine the light of God's son to a lost and dying world. Lord, we praise you and we thank you.